The Parsha today is known as Parsha Miketz. It is found in the 41st chapter of Genesis. And we read all the way through chapter 44 and verse 17. So 41.1 through 44.17, we have done the reading already. And so what I'd like to do is remind you briefly where we were last week and the week previous. The weeks previous, we've been looking at history. We've been looking at history, which we always say is a past event. However, the history we're looking at is both past and present and future. Because all of history, when you think about it, is going to be the entirety of time. What I'd like to suggest is as we look at these passages, not only do they give us a glimpse of the person and the work of Messiah, which we've been seeing, but they speak to the time that they happened. They speak to the time of the future from when they happened, both the past to us and also to our own present time. And indeed, even to the future of when we live right now. Remember that the rabbis say regarding the forefathers and the things they endured, the things they went through. It says that the deeds of the fathers portent the deeds of the sons. In other words, the things our forefathers endured and went through, they are going to be shadows, examples, or even perhaps prophecies of the things that later on the children of Israel would go through. And we gave several examples of that. We talked about the fact that both Abraham and Jacob went down to Egypt as a result of famine. And they're going to, Abraham going down to Egypt was an example of when Jacob would go down to Egypt as a result of famine. And these were, this was a generation and a half, two generations later, you might say. So I wanted to make sure we understand this aspect of it. So the things that have happened in the past speak to things which are current or even future. Indeed, we looked last week, remember, that Joseph in his youth related two dreams, separate dreams of different things to his brothers. We looked at the possibility that the first dream, which spoke of the sheaves, 11 sheaves bowing down to him, representative of the first coming of the Messiah. So that we would be able to say, okay, listen, if the first dream was about the first coming of Messiah, perhaps the second dream was about the second coming of the Messiah. And we looked at how those dreams were to be played out. We looked at the imagery of sheaves. We looked at the festival of first fruits in the Bible where God tells us that one sheaf was to be taken, separated, and taken then to be offered. And before, in fact, until that had been done, you could not participate, you could not eat from your field, you could not have the produce of your field until that first sheaf had been offered. Okay, we looked at the second dream, the fact that it was sun, moon, stars, bowing down to Yosef. Really an amazing thought. We see the exaltation in the end of days, a very different picture. We talked about Yaakov saying, how could I and your mother and your brothers bow down to you? Is this what you expect? And he was disturbed himself. We also talked about the fact that Yosef's mother was dead. At the time of the dream, she had been dead for some time. So the idea that Yosef's mother could also be among those who were bowing down, put it in the future, 
at the time of the resurrection. So we talked about those aspects of Yosef's life. And when we last left Yosef, if you look just backward, you're going to see that the last event we studied was another situation about dreams. These dreams, however, were different. Why? Because the dreams that were dreamt by the baker and the cupbearer of Egypt were in fact about the same event. Earlier, Yosef had had two dreams. His dreams were about different time periods and different events. And the language is pretty clear on that point. But when the cupbearer has a dream and the baker has a dream and both of them are about different events, it is interesting that they are considered to be one dream about one event, even though it involves what seems to be two characters. The baker having to do with bread, the cupbearer having to do with wine, and each of these events that as they were dreamt by two individuals are said to be one dream about one event. And there would come a point where through one event, the one who bears the cup will be exalted and the one who is the bread is going to be put to death. And the idea that these are both bound up in the same event are not, they're very different from Yosef's uh, dreams, which were of two different time periods and two different events. So here we have Yosef interpreting the dream of the baker and him interpreting the dream of the cupbearer. And three days after the dreams occurred, both men were dealt with according to the interpretation of the dream. The baker was hanged. His flesh was eaten. And the cupbearer restored to a position of glory and prominence at the right hand of Pharaoh, you might say, putting the cup in his palm. Having said that, remember that Yosef had had one last request. Remember me to Pharaoh. And he didn't do so. After he gets out, the last verse in the Parsha last week said, Yet the chamberlain of the cupbearers did not remember Yosef, but he forgot him. How long had he been in the prison up to that point? Well, according to tradition, he had been in the prison already for a year. Interesting. But here it's interesting in the text as we begin our Parsha, it says it happened at the end of two years to the day. Remember the day upon which the prophecy had been given? The day the prophecy was given and then three days later the cupbearer is exalted and the baker was hanged. And then now the next verse it says it happened at the end of two years to the day. What day was this? The day when? The exaltation of the cupbearer happened and the hanging of the baker happened. And two years later to the day, Pharaoh dreams a dream. He's going to dream two dreams and yet, according to what the text tells us, these two dreams will be again of one event. They're going to be interpreted as one event. It is in fact repeated in different variations so that the immediacy of the fulfillment of the prophecy is going to be apparent and it's going to be now. Remember this. All right. It happened at the end of two years of the day. I keep emphasizing that phrase, the end. Why do I do that? Because I mentioned the name of the Parsha is called Miketz. Miketz. 
Miketz means at the end. At the end. I want to talk to you for a minute about timing here. Not only is this two years to the day from when the prophecy was fulfilled in the cupbearer and in the baker's life, but it also is at the end of two years in another way. If you were to try to figure out where on the calendar this date might fall, remember, we're not going to go by the Egyptian calendar, and we're not going to go by the Johnny-come-lately Gregorian calendar that most of the world celebrates now. We're going to go back to the biblical calendar. And when is the biblical calendar reckoned? Well, first of all, we reckon the biblical calendar from the creation of the world, but we also are looking for other clues. So we say, all right, Rosh Hashanah. What are some of the traditional things done on Rosh Hashanah? Actually, we've been preparing for this day, so what are the day, what is the thing we're supposed to do? Sometimes Rosh Hashanah is called by other names indeed. What are some of the other names Rosh Hashanah is called by? Yom Hazikaron. Very good. And what does this translate to? A day of remembrance. And why do we call Rosh Hashanah a day of remembrance? What do we do on this day as a way of remembering? What is practiced on Yom Hazikaron, Day of Remembrance, Rosh Hashanah? What do we do? Well, one thing is we dress up in white. And why do we dress up in white? Because our sins are dealt with. And why are our sins dealt with? Because we have had a time of repentance. And so on Yom Hazikaron, the Day of Remembrance, we actually bring up issues that need to be confessed one to another. And we say, we remember our sin. Interesting. I want to bring that up only because I think it's important to know that if you were to examine some of the things that happen on Pharaoh's birthday, you're going to find out that what does the cupbearer do? On this day, he says, I remember my transgressions. And he confesses them to Pharaoh. Interesting. Rosh Hashanah, according to our traditions, is a day in which God judges the entire world for the year to come, according to our traditions. Now, what is it that's going to be revealed to Pharaoh on this day? But God is going to reveal to Pharaoh what will befall Egypt, not just for one year, but for the next 14 years. And that number is quite significant because God reckons things in terms of the cyclical aspect in terms of sevens. He made creation. He has the creation of the world take place on a six-day period with one day added for resting. So we have seven days in the week. We also have each of the Shemitah years, which is going to be every seven years, there's one year given to resting for the land for harvesting and producing and planting and so on. There's no cultivating or, produ- or, 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 or there's no planting or cultivating or harvesting in the Shemitah year, which is every seven years. And so we find that God wants to do things within cyclical periods of sevens. And that is true. 
And remember that Rosh Hashanah is typically seen as a day when the confession of people is made one to another asking for forgiveness because after all, Yom Kippur is coming. And the ten days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur during a time which when the gates of heaven are opened up and there's all this repenting going on and then ten days later the gates of heaven close as it were in terms of the judgment of God. But again, I want to make sure we understand here. In the 41st chapter of Bereshis today we see that God issues a judgment over Egypt and over the world as it were and he gives us this on this very day. I think it's fascinating that According to our traditions, God not only determines the course, but makes it known to the world what's going to happen over the next year. On Rosh Hashanah is the day he does this. Secondly, remember, one remembers, one repents from, and one confesses one's sin on Rosh Hashanah. What does he say? This day do I remember my sins, I my transgressions. And then he gives the understanding of what he should have done. What else? Rosh Hashanah is also believed to be a time when King Messiah will be crowned. He'll be exalted. He'll be put where he needs to be put, overseeing the affairs of the earth. Rosh Hashanah is going to be seen. Now we have been talking about Yosef being a type and a shadow and a picture of the Messiah who is to come. Yosef is that. So for us to see Yosef brought out of the prison and put upon a throne next to Pharaoh to be made the right hand of Pharaoh, so to speak, is a perfect picture of the crowning or the coronation which people believe is going to take place on Rosh Hashanah. Messiah, according to our tradition, will be crowned on Rosh Hashanah. Hmm. I think it's a significant thing to examine that and then ask ourselves again the question. If we were to assign a date to when this took place, if we were to look simply at who said what and what was taking place, it would fit very beautifully into the future framework of Yom Teruah, this day of the awakening blast the day upon which there would come a coronation, the day upon which Messiah would take his rightful place. Now, we're not talking about 2,000 years ago. We're not talking about when Yeshua came the first time. We're talking about when Yeshua is going to come the second time. When he appears again, he's going to have the crown placed upon his head. And that then makes what we're discussing or studying here today to be a prophecy, as it were, about a time which we have not yet seen. It is future even to sight. It is from Hoshea, Hosea the prophet. And he speaks of the fact that there's going to be, after two days, a reviving of the people. I think it's interesting that at the beginning of our Parsha today, you can turn it off, it says that at the end of two years to the day, Pharaoh was dreaming and. And then it begins the whole process of bringing Yosef out. This did not take several days to accomplish. The same day Pharaoh had his dream, Yosef was taken from prison. The same day he is puzzling over its interpretation, Yosef is going to be exalted and placed upon the throne. The suddenness, 
that this will occur should not escape us. Furthermore, Egypt would not have known a thing about Yosef prior to Yosef's arrival and suddenly being placed into power. This wasn't something that required the Congress approval. It did not require some confirmation process that would take many, many months of questioning and answering. This did not require the approval of anyone for the post. When Pharaoh decreed it done, it was done. And Egypt suddenly had a new ruler. The suddenness with which it happened is going to be reminiscent for us of the suddenness with which the earth is going to find itself under the governorship, the rulership, the kingship of King Messiah. They will not have known him prior to it. And believe me, even those people who are waiting for someone to come and take the reins, they will not know him the way he's going to be really presented to them. But let's talk. Rosh Hashanah is the interpreted time frame of what this is. The rabbis believe this firmly. They say when this all happened, it was Rosh Hashanah. And of course, they're looking at the demonstrations of what people said and what they meant and all that happened on this day. It certainly seems to fit in retrospect. And you say, the rabbis can't juxtapose backward a time frame upon the events of Pharaoh and Joseph and when he was taken out of prison. He can't do that. Well, in one sense, it is what we do ourselves by saying, look at what Messiah did. We then look at each of the festivals of God and we say, look at the first one, which was Passover. Look at how he entered the city and it was the 10th day of Nisan when he entered the city. And look at how on the 14th of Nisan he was killed and buried as the 14th drew to a close and it became the 15th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and raised up on the Feast of First Fruits. And what are we doing? We're saying in light of the events that took place in Messiah's life, it is simple for us to say, look at how each of these festivals show us something about the Messiah. We are proper in our understanding that these are the festivals of Messiah because each one is about Him. Now we're doing that. We're saying, look, when God gave these through Moses, the people at that time did not have a clue about what, would they, what they would paint a picture of, I would like to suggest. In the same way, we're looking at Joseph's life and the rabbis have done the same thing. They've said, look, we're looking back, we're looking back on what, who said what on this day and we believe it was Rosh Hashanah based upon what people said and what they did. You understand? They're applying it to a festival as we have applied Messiah to different festivals. It is certainly not wrong for us to do so, nor do I believe it was wrong for them to do so as well. So do I believe it was Rosh Hashanah when all this happened? Yes, I do. Okay. All right, having said that, Miketz. I mentioned seven years of plenty, and the text tells us this. It mentions seven years of terrible want and deprivation, which is going to take place following the seven years of plenty. Let me tell you something about what the rabbis teach regarding the seven years which will be just before the arrival of Messiah. I'm going to read to you from the Talmud here in Sanhedrin 97a. Our rabbis taught in the seven of the son of David's coming in the first year the verse I would send rain in one city and rain on another city, I would not send rain. Which, by the way, 
If you're looking it up, that verse is quoted from Amos, the fourth chapter. Amos 4, verse 7. So, again, the rabbis taught in the sevens of the son of David coming. Son of David is coming in the first year. The verse, I would send rain on one city and another, on another one I would not send rain, will be fulfilled. In the second, the arrows of hunger will be sent forth. Notice that it's arrows of hunger. It's like a weapon of war being sent forth among people. In the third, a great famine, during which men, women, infants, the devout of men and of deeds will die. And the Torah will be forgotten by her students. In the fourth, plenty and no plenty. In other words, some places perhaps would be plenteous and other places it would be wanting. In the fifth, great plenty when men will eat and drink and rejoice and their Torah will return to its disciples. In the sixth, noises or voices. In the seventh, war. And at the end of the seven, the son of man, the son of David will come, excuse me. Rabbi Yosef objected. But many such sevens have passed, yet he has not come. Rabbi Abaya replied, Was there ever noises or voices in the sixth year and wars in the seventh and have such troubles ever come in this particular order and so the rabbis have this idea of what will precede those years precede the coming of the Messiah another way of understanding the idea of coming to pass at the end of two full years the rabbis in the Midrash in Bereshit Sarabah 89.1 says this and it came to pass at the end of two full years. It is written in Job 28, verse 3, by the way, it says, He sets an end to darkness. A definite period was set for the world to spend in darkness. What is the proof? He sets an end to darkness and the stones of thick darkness and the shadows of death. Job chapter uh, 28. For as long... For as long as the evil tempter exists in the world, thick darkness and the shadow of death are in the world. But when the evil tempter will be uprooted from the world, thick darkness and the shadow of death will pass away from the world. Did you catch that? The shadow of death is going to be passing away from the world. In other words, death will die when he puts an end to darkness. When does he do it? He sets a time to end the darkness, according to Job. Another interpretation of he sets an end to darkness. A definite number of years was fixed for Joseph to spend in prison. This is from the same passage in the Midrash. And when the appointed time came, Pharaoh fulfilled the dream, or dreamed a dream. Thus, and it came to pass at the end of two years. Hmm. Now, the concept of darkness and light are clearly related here to what Messiah referred to as himself being the light and as long as the light remained. Let us keep that in mind. Seven years of difficulties coming upon the earth in which there's going to be differences between all the other times that we've lived on this earth. It's going to be very, very odd. Now, I want you to know, 
as we've looked at this, Joseph, remember, has passed the test in prison of remaining a servant. Prior to him being placed into the prison, he had been tempted. And every time he spoke up, with regard to his time before being exalted to the throne of Pharaoh, he answered people according to what God's perspective was. Remember, first time was when Potiphar's wife approaches him and he, he lays out for her the situation and then caps it off by saying, how can I do a great sin against God? As if to say, you don't even grasp what's going on here. It's God we have to worry about. Not Potiphar necessarily. It's God we cannot sin against. This would be a great sin against God. The second one was in the prison. And the second time was when the, the chamberlain of the, or rather the baker and the cupbearer said to him, we've had a dream. And he says, do not dreams. The interpretation of dreams belong to God. And the third time was in our Parsha today when Pharaoh asks him, I've heard you can interpret dreams. And again, there's a test of humility here being placed before him. I've got to tell you something. If you see your way out of prison is to interpret well for Pharaoh, would you be able to say, no, I can't do that? Heard you can interpret dreams. You interpreted well for these two. No, not me. I mean, the temptation to say, well, tell it to me and let's see if we can't. Uh, the temptation to do that will be great. Joseph does not. He really demonstrates his servitude in everything he does, even when faced with the possibility of putting prison behind him and finding favor with Pharaoh. Of course, he doesn't know what's about to happen. But he still says, that is beyond me. I can't do that. But God can interpret. Tell me the dream, and perhaps God will demonstrate what he's about to do. So again, each of the three times he mentions, he speaks up before being exalted to the throne is a time when he says to people, God is the one we need to focus upon. Remember the three temptations that were placed before Messiah. Each time he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He didn't say, what an illogical thing for you to say. What do you mean turn stones to bread? That's a stupid, stupid idea. What, what, what are you, nuts? He doesn't do that. Instead he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. So I want to point out again some similarities there. And remember that Yosef has been, so far, pure and humble. And he's the right man for the job now. And so Pharaoh now brings him to his side with the, the interpretation. What are the dreams, by the way? The dreams. It's interesting that the wording that Pharaoh uses to describe the dreams to Yosef are different from the way it actually says they happened. You're looking at English, you say, oh, it doesn't seem that, that much different. In Hebrew, there are some real distinctions and differences between the way Pharaoh interpreted, or rather told the dream to Yosef. And the fact is, Yosef interprets it according to the way they actually happened, not the way Pharaoh described them. Which would have been to Pharaoh a very real distinction. He would have seen it. He would have thought, you know what? He's not going on the operation of what I told him. He's going on what really took place. That's remarkable. And Yosef had that insight, that vision into what really took place. You know, we see another example of this. The supernatural aspect of dream interpretation. Do you remember when Daniel was brought before King Nebuchadnezzar? And Daniel asks, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar asks Daniel to tell him what the dream was that he had. 
He doesn't tell him, here's my dream, please interpret it. He says, tell me what I dreamed. And not only does Daniel tell him what he dreamed in very vivid detail and accurately, but he also interprets it for him. And that concept demonstrates the supernatural quality of interpretation as it belongs to God and God alone. So here, Yosef, if you look carefully at the Hebrew, you'll see that there are distinctions. The passage begins that Pharaoh dreamt this, and it describes what he dreamt. Then we have the second time where Pharaoh tells what he dreamt. And we have then Joseph saying, this is what you really dreamt, here's his interpretation. And there's a difference. So again, the supernatural quality. It may be why Yosef, he no longer had the ability to hear directly from God. It's as if when Yosef was in his house, Yaakov could hear from God. When Yosef was not in his house, he couldn't. And here's the way the rabbis have, have spoken about it. They say that when Yaakov lost Yosef, the Ruach, the Spirit of God, which had been upon him, that it went away. It left him. And that when he was back in Yosef's presence, that the Spirit of God came back upon him. Now you have to understand something. Remember Yaakov, he was in his own father's house and then through the events that he himself set in motion, he needed to flee and he was in the land of the east, the Mesopotamian area, and he was with Laban. Remember that. And during that time, God spoke to him when he first left and God spoke to him when he was coming back. And it seems like during that whole long period of time he was out there in the diaspora, there was no communication from God. And you get this idea, well, if this is such a man who's close to God, why in the world is God speaking to him here and then waits, you know, 22 years to speak to him again? And, and, and how long is this? I mean, what's the, what's the time frame here? I mean, see, he, he just, this doesn't seem to be this real close connection like Reb Tevye, you know, who's always talking to God and God seems to be talking to him. And it, it, it's not like that. And so you could say, well, if Yaakov loses Yosef, why would he not seek out the face of God and ask God what's going on here? And why would God let him go all of these years? All of these years without knowing that his own son was alive. Didn't, didn't God have an interest in telling Jacob that he didn't have to worry? You know, wouldn't it have been easier on Jacob not to have had the grief and the sorrow of all those years if God had just said to Jacob, I have him somewhere. I don't want you to know where, but he's alive and he's well. And at the right time, I'll bring the two of you back together. Wouldn't that have been just a lot better? Because, but all this time, Yaakov, Jacob has thought that Joseph was dead. And you know, even the brothers began to think that. Remember what they said in our Parsha today? We are being held accountable for his blood. Why? They didn't want a voice saying he's dead, but they do later say we fear he's been, he's been killed. And yet they refer to his blood, that they're being held accountable for it. Hmm. But it seems that Jacob has no insight whatsoever. The rabbis say that Jacob had a dim, limited vision. Remember his father... Isaac had had physical limitations on his vision. He was blinded. 
Jacob has already been shown that there are times he could blind it even when his eyesight was perfect. Why? Because of external circumstances. If, the, if it was nighttime and the woman he's with is wearing a veil, he thinks it's the bride of his choice and it turns out it's, his, it's her sister. And so there's certain factors that are going to inhibit Jacob's vision as well. And here, the rabbis teach us, again, in the Midrash, they say that Jacob was, had partial perception, but he could not see everything. Notice that in our Parsha today it says, we'll go over to chapter 42, verse 1. He's limited in the way, what he can see. I don't, notice the, the wording here is very specific. It said, Yaakov perceived that there were, and I use the word provisions here, in Egypt. How is it that he saw? Well, according to the rabbis, he saw this in a vision, that there was provision in, in, in Egypt. And I'm, I'm using the word provision again, but I'll change it in a moment. Uh, but his perception only went that far. According to them, he had prophecy, he had the ability to see that there was provision in Egypt. But that's it. Then, they say he could not tell that his son was behind it, that his son was alive, his perceptions ended there. What does this mean? Well, Jacob is also known as Israel. And it seems that there is such brilliance and wonderful insight that the sages give us as we study Torah. And yet, it seems that there are certain things they're unable to see. They cannot grasp the concept that Yeshua is alive. And that Yeshua, their own brother, who was treated improperly and who was handed over to the Goyim, is alive. They believe he's dead. They're firmly of the opinion that he's dead. And you know what? So often things that have taken place have been taken place because people accuse them of deicide and say, you're going to pay now. Your blood, his blood you must answer for. There are communities to this day, to this day, there are communities where it is said in them, Good Friday is the day it is best to strike at a Jew. Hit a Jew because it's Good Friday. And what do people say? You must be held account to account for the blood of this one. Remember that the Torah speaks on different issues of justice. One of the things it says is that if you kidnap, if you kidnap a person and sell him, you must be put to death. What else does it say? It says, A son shall not be punished for his father's deeds, nor shall a father be punished for his son's deeds. What does that mean? Well, there were several rabbis. There were ten rabbis that were rounded up. In the first century of the common era, there were several rabbis rounded up. They were brought before the, uh, the emperor. Uh, ten of them. And they were asked the question, these sages were asked, is it not true that if one of, if, if a person kidnaps another and sells him, that their blood, they're liable for his blood, they're to be, they're paid for it with their own lives? And they said yes. So the emperor said at that point, well, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery did not pay with their lives. Therefore, your lives are forfeit. I'm going to make sure that justice is now done. 
And he had those ten sages put to get, put to death. And had he looked at another part of the Torah, it would have said that there is no giving to the children the discipline that is due to the fathers, nor the other way around. But they, he did not. It is interesting. By the way, if we're talking about guilt, we're talking about people who would put Jews to death on the charge of deicide, it strikes me as odd that no one has ever gone after the descendants of Rome, the Italians. No one has ever gone after them saying, you are the ones who did it because they were the ones who beat, lashed, placed the crown of thorns on his head, pounded the nails in, and killed him. No one ever has... No one ever comes up with... You know, it's interesting to me, we live in a country, as most Western, most civilized countries have, have put into place protections from punishing those people who are innocent. As a matter of fact, if someone gets... If it's found out that someone has served time and found out later on that they were innocent all along, they can sue for wrongful arrest, wrongful imprisonment, and they can have huge settlements given to them and courts would say that the courts that we embrace today and say these are good court systems would say it is better to let ten guilty men go free than to punish one innocent man by mistake. And that's why reasonable doubt is used in courts. And that's why the idea that we should protect the innocent from ever being punished is such a great and great, a horribly important thing to, our, to, to Western society and, and to civilized nations. So my question is, what guilt is there to be placed upon a leader and a people who he leads who would say, I find this man innocent and then has him beaten and then has a place placed upon his head a crown of thorns and then causes him to be killed in spite of the fact that in his own wisdom he found him innocent of all charges and not worthy of death at all. As a matter of fact, Herod also did not believe he was worthy of death. Any of the leadership of that day said he was innocent, now kill him. Now there's guilt. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what measure of responsibility would fall upon such individuals? At least the Jewish people who were asking for him to be crucified did so because they firmly believed he was not innocent. They believed him guilty of other things because they rejected his claims. But those who would call him innocent and then kill him so why is it that history has not seen fit to say the Christ killers are the Italians, the Romans? Why is it that this has never been brought up and used to exonerate, as it were, Jewish people from being treated a certain way? Come on. Why is it that still today, and you know what's interesting to me, is that the perpetrators of these activities of hit a Jew... It's Good Friday. Strike a Jew. It has been from the Roman Catholic Church that these, these sayings have come. And in 
in our day to day, it is still, you know, um, around Easter, there are still women who get worried when their children aren't all home on Good Friday because they're worried something may have befallen them at the hands of those who call themselves Christians. Why is it that that fear still exists today? Anyway, that's an aside. Let's continue on here. Here's the Midrash on Jacob's partial blindness and an interesting play on words with regard to the word provisions. One way of looking at this word is that it's not the word provisions at all, but corn. The word shever. Shever means corn. Now, Yaakov saw that there was shever in Egypt. Hmm. Was then Yaakov in Egypt that the scripture says, Now Yaakov saw that there was corn in Egypt? Did he not say to his sons, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt? That's the next line, right? It says he saw there was corn in Egypt. Then he says to his sons, I have heard there's corn in Egypt, right? Since the day that Yosef had been stolen, however, the Holy Spirit departed from him. He saw but did not see. He heard yet he did not hear. In other words, there was a partial blindness and a partial deafness over Israel from the time Yosef departed from him. Do you see the picture here? Romans 11 says what regarding... It says that salvation has come to the non-Jewish people as a result of the stumbling of the Jewish people. But then it goes on to say... When the Jewish people come into their fullness, how much more great riches will come to the non-Jews as a direct result. It will be like life from the dead. The difference, the contrasting. But here it is. Yosef was stolen from him and at that time the Holy Spirit departed from him so that he saw yet did not see, heard yet did not hear. Now why does it say, why does it not say Jacob saw that there was bar or that there was okel but there was shever Corn. It says, read not Sheber, corn, Sheber, corn, but Sever, hope. You see, the letter starts with a sheen, or does it? Perhaps it starts with a seen. You see, it's the same letter. The punctuation changes. Sheen would be on the right, seen would be on the left, and the dagesh above the letter is not there in the original. Therefore, we guess that it was sheber instead of saber because it seems to make sense in context. There's corn in Egypt. And yet, if we see a partial understanding that this was prophecy, it is equally possible that it meant that there was hope, saber, in Egypt. And he said, I've heard. Do you understand? So I think it's important to realize that the word Sheber and Seber is spelled exactly the same way. The punctuation simply goes from the right side to the left side if we're simply changing the way it's pronounced above the sheen slash scene. Okay? It's kind of cool to know that. What else? Well... He sends them down to Egypt and they encounter this really interesting person who immediately says, you're spies. They don't recognize him. Why don't they recognize him? Well, 
as a direct result of Egyptian culture upon him, remember that before he could even appear before a pharaoh, the first thing he had to do was shave. He washes and he shaves. Now, washing was not foreign to Jews, but shaving was. As a matter of fact, shaving would have been very foreign to those who were Hebraic in origin. So imagine, you know how you've met somebody who maybe who has a beard, they've had, they seem to have always had a beard since you've known them and you never knew any other thing except the beard and then suddenly they show up one day and they, they look like their head is suddenly much smaller because they've shaved. I've had this happen. There's people who I've met and I see them a certain way and then boom, suddenly they're different. I say, what happened to you? And you look so different. You look weird. Somebody who maybe wore glasses and suddenly they were in contact or vice versa. Or, or, uh, but anyway, the point is, I, you know, someone, for example, who's got this long hair and then suddenly there's no longer any hair there. And you say, what happened to you? And they say, you know, well, I, I was cutting my own hair and I missed a spot or something like that. But, uh, but that would never happen here, of course. But I'm just saying, you know, somebody, you see somebody and you suddenly look, they look different, you know? And you say, hey, they look different because there's maybe... Here. In the same way that Yeshua, ever since Yeshua, Jesus was taken from the earth, what do we find? We find if you look at pictures, if you look at drawings, if you look at depictions of him, he has been made to look very different than what the Bible refers to him as. One thing, many of the depictions I have seen, and you have also, show him as a blue-eyed person. And in fact, blue eyes in Middle Eastern culture of the Second Temple period would have been completely unknown, not even remotely a possibility. That's the first thing. Second, the depictions we see show him with all kinds of long hair, hair flowing down here. This is a misunderstanding of several important concepts. Number one, the Torah forbids long hair on a man unless that man has taken a certain vow. And the vow he takes is to not touch the fruit of the vine. That means no grapes, no raisins, not even the pips, not the seeds, nothing, and certainly no juice and no wine. The fruit of the vine would have been completely unknown to a person who had taken this particular vow. What's another thing? They could not touch a dead body. They could not enter a place a dead body existed. They could never have been around a dead body, you understand. What's the third one? They would never have touched a razor to their head. Nothing. In other words, the hair would then have grown long. How long was this vow supposed to last? Well, there was no time frame given for it. But in the Torah, God says that if a person takes such a vow, that for the whole duration of the vow, they must abstain from all of those things. And then at the conclusion of that vow, you could not just decide, oh, I decided I'm going to start drinking wine today or I'm going to start eating grapes again. Or I think I'll, you know, go visit the grave of somebody that I know. It had to be a officially coming to a conclusion. And the way it came to a conclusion was they had to shave their entire hair off their entire body. They had to take it and offer it up, burn it. They had to go through a ritual cleansing, which was to be immersed in water. They had to have come and offer a sacrifice at the temple. 
This was known as the vow of a Nazir, sometimes known as a Nazrite vow in English. And the problem has come in people misunderstanding the phrase. They say, well, Jesus was from the town of Nazareth, therefore he was a Nazarite. Wrong. He would be accurately called a Nazarene because he's from the town of Nazareth. And in Hebrew, it's actually very interesting because it's not even a Nazir or Nazarene or Nazareth. It's not Zeret. Not Zeret. There's a T in there. Not Zeret, we would say in English. What does that mean? Branch town. Yeah, because Netzer is branch. And those who were descended from King David lived in Netzeret. It was a town filled with people who had descended from King David. They were all related. And the town of Netzeret is where he lived. But he had never taken the vow of a Nazir, which is different entirely. The spelling in Hebrew is remarkably different. They're not even close. So the question is, how do I know he never took such a vow? How do we know Yeshua, Jesus, did not have long hair? How do we know this for a fact? Well, number one, because he went to where dead bodies were. He touched people who were unclean. He touched, un, he touched dead bodies. He drank of the fruit of the vine. And had he done these things while under the vow of a Nazir, he would be called something very simply that could render all of us in trouble, a sinner. The fact is, if you see him with long hair depicted in some picture or painting somewhere, you are seeing him depicted as a sinner. It is as if you're watching him hold up a bank in the painting. It's as if he is committing murder. It's as if he's committing adultery. These are things that would render him impossible to be the Savior. And it would be equally impossible for him to be the Savior if he had long hair because the long hair depiction of him shows him in sin. You understand? He was not a long-haired individual. His hair would have been trimmed. It would not have been shaved. It would have been trimmed. The Torah refers to a proper length of hair. And the Corinthian letter in which Rabbi Shaul was perfectly well aware of who he represented said, is it, does it not nature itself teach you that it is a shame for a man to have long hair? Rabbi Shaul who makes these points would never say such a thing if he is referring to his own Lord his own Messiah, he would never say such a thing referring to the fact that Yeshua was shameful. No. The bottom line is he didn't have long hair. Wouldn't have had long hair. What else? Oh, the eye color and the hair length is only one part of it. But you, you know what? It's, it's interesting because when Joseph's brothers showed up to see him, they spoke to each other in Hebrew but he knew the language because, of course, he was raised that way. However, he had been so, so thoroughly um, immersed with an Egyptian language since the time he arrived here. He was well versed in it. And therefore, he chose 
to employ an interesting technique. He would converse with his brothers through an interpreter. He would speak to the interpreter in the Egyptian tongue, and the Egyptian interpreter would take his tongue and he would interpret it to Hebrew. Question, how did the interpreter learn to speak Hebrew? This isn't as if there was a nation of people so numerous that they had ambassadors to this nation and that people would have naturally come to understand and learn Hebrew. The only Hebrew that this interpreter would have ever encountered would have been Joseph. Period. Which means the interpreter was in on it. Knew. The only other Hebrews that lived that were alive were Jacob, his wives, and his sons and grandsons, and none of them had been in Egypt, to their knowledge. None of the offspring of Jacob had ever been here before. So how did the interpreter know? Joseph had to have taught him. When did he have time to teach him? I would suggest that when Joseph ascended the throne, when Joseph became the grand vizier, as it were, the prime minister, the second in command, the viceroy, he would have known that this was part of the process of restoring his brothers and would have made ready for this day. The interpreter was not pulled out of a hat. Abracadabra, interpret. No. The interpreter was prepared in advance because Yosef had an understanding in advance of what was going to take place. Didn't know the particulars yet, but knew it nonetheless. Hmm. Something to think about, wouldn't you say? So he employs this technique of speaking to his brothers through an interpreter. Now, how is it that people today view Yeshua, Jesus? Well, until recently, people had this opinion. In fact, it was taught in seminaries all over the world that Jesus spoke primarily Greek. That's what they believed. Now, some of you are shaking your heads in disbelief, and I understand that. Believe me, I do too. I say, how in the world could they have thought that? He was living in Israel, among Jews. Now, mind you, there was some Hellenization that had taken place through the people who had lived uh, since Alexander's day. In fact, back in Egypt, you know, the biggest Jewish community outside of uh, the Middle East was in Egypt at that time, Alexandria. Second largest one. Uh, it maybe was rivaling the one in the ancient east part of the Mesopotamian area. So you have the Mesopotamian area and you have Egypt, two places where Jews are really, really big in their numbers. But that's, that's beside the point. Did he speak Greek? No. How do we know this? People say, well, then if he didn't speak Greek, he spoke Aramaic. Why is there such a desire to not have him speaking Hebrew? Why? Because speaking Hebrew would mean a certain continuity to certain ideas. And people who are seeking to find a division between one era and another era, between one idea and another idea, need to seek a way of breaking through the language barrier as well. Now people say, what about in the Gospels when it actually quotes Aramaic? This is not a contradiction. Aramaic, as you know, is a cousin language to Hebrew. If you spoke Hebrew, you could also understand Aramaic quite easily because of the many, many similarities. And indeed, there are people who did 
use Aramaic terms in the second century. The Gospels do have records of certain Aramaic phrases, and you'll even see things like Shimon bar Yonah, Simon bar Jonah. What's that mean? Bar is the Aramaic term for son, just as the Hebrew would be ben. Ben and bar then are similar. But the question is, what was the common language of the Second Temple period? Well, I said until recently people thought it was Greek. And it was taught that way in seminaries. Why do I say until recently? Well, within the last generation, we saw something come to light that was very, very revealing. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the community of Qumran, we find many, 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 many scrolls were unearthed. Among them, the Bible. It was very, very interesting and comforting for us to get copies of the Bible that were 2,000 years old because... When comparing the Hebrew of those manuscripts to the Hebrew that we possess today, we find that there is no difference whatsoever. Letter for letter, it is exactly the same word. In other words, that which we hold today is accurate when compared to a 2,000-year-old document. And that's a great deal of comfort. Because if you were to live 2,000 years ago, and you were to think back to the beginning of the Torah, when was it first given? It would have only been given 1,500 years before that. The Torah, from the time God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai, is only 3,500 years old. And so if God has been able to preserve without error, without change, without the slightest difference for the last 2,000 years, and we know that for a fact now, he was also able to preserve it for the previous 1,500 years as well. It's his preservation, not ours. He did this without computers, printing presses, and diskettes. He did it completely by hand-copied scribe using it. Now, what else did the community Qumran unearth? What, what did they find at the community in Qumran? Many, many, many other texts. And I'm not talking about pseudo-biblical texts. I'm talking about daily life things. Who was going to do what? Journals, diaries, record keeping, laws and rules of their community. Who was to do what and what would happen to them if they didn't do it? In fact, there are records of, of people who were punished for doing things wrong. And there were so many, many, many documents found there. They are so numerous. And guess what language they were in the common language of the Second Temple period, Hebrew. So, do we dispute that Aramaic was in use? No, not at all. But what was the common language? What was the one that everyone was using? What was the language of the marketplace? What was the language of learning? What was the language of um, interaction, socially speaking? It was Hebrew. And this we know. Now, since the Qumran community was unearthed in the 1940s, 1948, to be specific, 47-48, in that time frame. All right. Having said that, Joseph's language expected that he would speak Egyptian, so to speak. Isn't it interesting that later on his brothers would find out that really what he spoke was Hebrew, their own language? 
There came a point where he dispensed with the interpreter, and we'll get to that next week, where he's going to speak to them directly. But it's interesting. When Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams correctly, Pharaoh does more than just give him a makeover in terms of, the, of his, um, his appearance and teach him, of course, the Egyptian necessity of, of communicating. But he also gives him a wife. It's interesting, Joseph did not choose this wife. Pharaoh chose this wife for Joseph. Hmm. There's a lot to be understood about this. This particular woman... As you might guess, there's a lot of tradition about her origins. Some traditions suggest that she, in fact, is the daughter of Potiphar, even though here it says she's the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, that, in fact, Potiphar is the real mention here. There's tradition saying that here um, her mother was, in fact, the, the temptress. And as there is a reward for not submitting to the temptation of this woman, that he wound up having a, um, the daughter for his wife. There's some tradition about that. In fact, the rabbis even go so far as to say, when Potiphar's wife first approached Joseph, that she had in mind this view that um, her grandchildren or her offspring were going to be rulers. In fact, what, if we understand what some of the traditions are about this woman, there is a first century of the common era writing, a pseudepigraphical writing, which purports to be an accurate record of, of all that took place between Azanat and Yosef. And uh, let me just give you a little bit about this. Um, according to this particular tradition, she saw Yosef in the same way that Potiphar's wife saw Yosef and thought, I want this man. And, but she, of course, being a virgin, was doing so with a little different motivation. She wanted him for a husband, according to the tradition. And the tradition is that she tried to go after him and to get, her to, uh, to get him to notice her. But he had no interest in her whatsoever. According to the tradition, again, he had no interest in her. As a matter of fact, because she's the daughter of the priest of On, he really comes down hard on her for worshiping idols. Okay? So that's his response to her is, how can you worship these pagan pieces of wood and stone and how can you worship the Nile River and how can you worship the sun and how can you worship, you know, all these other... In other words, he's really, really upset and, and, and disgusted with her. And when he rebukes her, she becomes humbled and she becomes filled with shame. In fact, we would use the word she was convicted of soul when he rebuked her. Again, this is according to the tradition, all right? So she who has fallen utterly for Joseph, no longer because he's good looking and handsome of form and beautiful of appearance, but because of his righteousness, she now sees him for being someone who is a man of integrity, one that she could really look up to. And it says, having gone after him for the wrong reason, now her reasons for wanting to marry him is, is because of a true and a significant spiritual love. Okay? So what does she do to demonstrate this? She destroys all the idols in her own home. 
She dresses in sackcloth and in ashes. And she does this out of Joseph's sight because she doesn't want to be seen as trying to do this for his benefit. No, instead, in the privacy of her own dwelling, she dresses in sackcloth and ashes and she calls upon the God of Joseph. This is the tradition. She calls upon the God of Joseph and during the seven-day period, she sits in sackcloth and ashes, seven days. She has a vision and this vision is of a heavenly being who appears to her And the quotation from this particular writing says that he was a man in every respect similar to Joseph, except that his face was like lightning in his eyes, like sunshine, and the hairs of his head like a flame of fire of a burning torch, and his hands and his feet like iron shining forth from a fire. Does that sound familiar to you? If you were to read Revelation chapter 19, you would find a description of the Messiah as he returns. It says his hair is as white as snow. His limbs are like, listen to this, burnished bronze, shining bronze. His voice is like many waters. His eyes like flaming coals. Does it sound similar? The the pseudepigraphical story here which we're referring to about Azanat and Yosef refers to this vision that she has during this time of repenting and turning from idolatry because she wishes to know the God of Yosef. And this vision of the one who looks like Yosef, except for these details. In other words, if you were to read the book of Daniel, if you were to read the book of Revelation, you begin to see a same description as being given in this particular pseudobiographical writing. So what does the Yosef exalted Yosef being that appears to her say to her according to again the writing it says take courage for behold your name was written in the book of the living in heaven in the beginning of the book as the very first of all your name was written by my finger and it will not be erased forever behold from today you will be renewed and formed anew and made alive again And you will eat the blessed bread of life and drink a blessed cup of immortality and anoint yourself with the blessed ointment of incorruptibility. And your name shall no longer be called Azanat, but your name shall be the city of refuge, because in you many nations will take refuge with the Lord God Most High. And under your wings many peoples will be sheltered, and behind your walls will be guarded those who attach themselves to the Most High in the name of repentance." End of quote. Pretty bold. But let's not forget, Azanat will be the mother of Manasseh and Ephraim. The story talks about this, mentions the fact that as a person who is, in a sense, repenting and who has had this visitation, it's a prophecy to her. It's a prophecy and an assurance of her own state, her own salvation, her own repentance, bringing her into a relationship with the God of Joseph. In many ways, she is a prototype for those who would come from the nations, who would forsake idolatry and want to be completely part of this picture. She's begging God 
According to the pseudepigraphical writing, again, the, the tradition is that after she encounters this Joseph being, she becomes a worshiper of the Lord God. She takes off her garb of mourning and repentance and she now goes through an immersion, dresses herself again as, as one who now is awaiting marriage. Marrying, she dresses herself according to the legend in a garment of marriage and she waits. And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, I'm going to give to you a wife, Azanat, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. The tradition has it that he then receives his bride because of Pharaoh's command, but sees in her now such a change from the girl who tried to win his heart by looking good and by presenting herself as a, a good candidate for him. I've a truly transformed. I want you to notice that in the language of that particular tradition, she has her name written by him. She's going to be made renewed and formed anew and made alive again. It sure sounds to me like being born again. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at this? And certainly in this picture we see such a dramatic change. Again, these are all traditions. We don't know all of what happened beyond the text telling us that he gave Joseph, Azanat, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, and the fact that later it says she bore him sons. We see no other thing. But I want to ask you something. You who are married, do you know you're unable to live within that framework without truly becoming close in every way? There is, it's an impossibility that Yosef married Azanat but kept her away from himself. And she who would have married him would have seen him as a magnificent savior of Egypt, savior of the world. She would have seen this. The significance in that alone would have caused her to look to his life, his God, his lifestyle and made it her own. If they two were one, and they were, and they had children together. This would have been enormously significant in how she would have been transformed through that marriage. Let us not forget that. So even if the legends themselves are simply to be laid aside and say, interesting idea, we have no proof of them, fine. But one thing you know from your own experience is that people who are married together cannot remain the same. It's impossible they will transform. Think of that with regard to Azanat and Yosef. He's given a name by, by Pharaoh. He's called Zaphonat Penea. Zaphonat Penea. This is interesting because so much of the naming business has to do with qualities and characteristics. You know this. This is why God says to Jacob, I'm going to call you Israel because you have striven with God and you have overcome and I want us to keep that in mind as well. Um, naming. Zaphonath Paneah. It has been translated many ways. I have seen it translated as Savior and Redeemer. But there's something else I think that is important. That 
Tzafon, which is a Hebrew word, and in fact, if we look at the Hebrew, it's actually Tzafanat, not Zafanat, but Tzafanat. It's a Tzadik, excuse me, at the beginning. And the, the Hebrew word Tzafon, which means to hide away or to, to be hidden. So, if we're talking about Savior and Redeemer, we're talking about a hidden Savior and Redeemer. And it's fascinating that Pharaoh would give him this. Why? Because in one sense, Pharaoh knows this to be true. He's been hidden away in my dungeons, this jewel, this man that I am now going to entrust my very life and the future of my country and the future of the world to, has been hidden away in a prison. And I discovered him. <laughs> but the whole hidden aspect is very much a part of what we've been talking about, hasn't it? The past several weeks, what have we been talking about? Abraham had hidden from his eyes, which was the true son of promise. Isaac had hidden from his eyes, which was the true son of promise, in more ways than one. <laughs> Not only did he have his hope set upon the wrong one, but even when that was firmly in place, Jacob passed himself off as the son of promise when he was the son of promise, but Isaac didn't know that. And the whole hiding his identity with the, the goat skin and the, you understand? The hidden son, the hidden son, the hidden son. It's always been through this process. And here we again see the hidden, the hidden redeemer, the hidden savior of, of Egypt, unknown. So I want to make sure we, we realize this. Nasha, the first son. God has made me to forget. Nasha. He's made me to forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. When people wrong us, it is very, very difficult to say, I'm done with it, I'm okay with it, it is no longer an issue with me. There's a roller coaster of emotion. And there are times when a person who wrongs you you, you look at them and you say, I forgive them. And then a week later, you're struggling again with the whole idea of how do I feel toward this person. Forgiveness is a choice one makes. And we say clearly, I choose to forgive this person or I choose to forgive that person. But it doesn't mean that necessarily the emotions are there. And those of you who know what real love is in marriage especially, you know you choose to love and you choose to forgive when the emotions are not there. And you do it because it's the right thing to do. And I feel so sad for people who say, I won't forgive because I don't feel it. Because they do not grasp what forgiveness is. They don't understand forgiveness. I think here Joseph has had to, to see so much what, is, what was done to him. He is able, at this point, when his first son is born, to say that the measure of happiness he has now he has Azenat. He now has Menasha, a son. And he's seated at, the, seated at the right hand of Pharaoh and he's governor of Egypt. And soon the world will be coming to his feet asking for, them, asking for him to save them as well. They'll be coming to him because they must. What a remarkable thing for him to say, God has caused me to forget. He's forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. It's not like he didn't know who they were. It's not like he couldn't name them or <laughs> know their birth order, as the text tells us today that he did know and 
cause them to be seated in that order. But when Menashe is born, there is a balm, there's a healing that takes place. It's a, it's a cathartic thing that happens there. It's a, it winds up being instrumental in healing his emotions. And indeed, there's nothing that will heal people's emotions more than, than bliss. Bliss will do that to you. I think it's interesting. Of course, Ephraim is plural. The word im, the im suffix on the end means there's, a, 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 there's a more than one. Ephraim means fruitfulness in multiples. Multiple fruitfulness. Does he still want his father? You betcha. Does he long for the reunion with his brothers? I don't know. I mean, let's be realistic. Does he really want the opportunity to be heard again? I don't know. But I know this, if his brothers were to show up, which he's been planning for, he does want reconciliation. And it's going to be through the testing process that reconciliation will come. Joseph did some interesting things to determine where his brothers stood, where was their heart, what was it that they were like after all these years. What had they been transformed? Do you know one of the problems that we have when people leave a community? When people leave other people, they have in their minds a photograph, a snapshot in time. They take a good look around before they leave and they say, everyone who is seated here, I will remember because they're always going to be exactly as they are right now. Think about it for a minute. What's one of the greatest disadvantages to someone who leaves a community? They never feel the same person that they last saw. There's no growth, at least not from their perspective. We see in Joseph, however, a difference. Joseph is not assuming anything. He is simply trying to determine where his brothers have changed. He knows how much he has gone through. He begins to recognize his brothers must have also gone through changes. And what he hears them talk about, what he hears them discussing, is very revealing. We hear them discussing the first thing they turn to when, when hardship starts to befall them is, this is because of what we did to Joseph. He knows that it is so close to the surface of their own minds and perhaps they've never yet discussed it among themselves until this moment. We don't know. All we know is they've been watching their father wither under the grief. They've been watching him slowly becoming unreachable. He's withdrawn. He doesn't talk about it to them. They don't talk about it with him. And suddenly, they're being placed into a very difficult situation. What's happened? They're being told they're spies. They're placed into prison for three days. I'd like to suggest they were placed into prison for three days and three nights. Why do I suggest that? Well, remember the tradition that was that Joseph was placed into the pit for three days and three nights? And that during that time, he neither ate nor drank. Remember that? He received no sustenance. 
I find it interesting that that tradition is there and that here we're told in the text that they are in prison for three days. Why not? It certainly would be blow for blow, tear for tear, throb for throb, drop of blood for drop of blood, as it were. And so what we see? Three days and three nights. Then he pulls them all out and he says, I'm going to keep one of you. Which one did he keep? Shimon. Why Shimon? Well, you may recall, Ruvain had tried to keep them from killing him. That's the first oldest. And Shimon. Do you remember when Shimon was born, what his mother said? God has heard my prayer. He's heard me. And Shimon was born. Why is that significant? Because the root word for Shimon is Shema, here. It has been proposed by some, and the more I consider it, the more I think that there's something to this, that if we're looking at this whole picture as a messianic shadow of Joseph being representative of Messiah, we could say then that in one sense, Shema, or the heard one, must be removed from their midst while they go off and ponder what's going on in Egypt some more. In other words, you could say that hearing was taken from them while they went back to their father. Okay? Just a thought. It's interesting. If you were to look at chapter 42, verse 6. That's the one I really want to show here. Joseph's brothers came and they bowed to him, faces to the ground. Now go to verse 9. Joseph recalled the dreams that he dreamt about them. It's kind of interesting to watch your brothers that you know, but they don't know you, bow down and put their faces on the ground in front of you, bowing down. And then suddenly, bing, the little light bulb, you know, appeared above his head. And he said, Aha! This looks familiar. <laughs> and in what way does it look familiar? The dream I dreamt. Wow, they are now here. And they're bowing down to me. He recalled it. He does put them through some tests to find out just in what ways they have, they have um, changed. I think it's fascinating that on their second visit to him, he gives Benjamin five times the amount of food that he gives to the others. And I, I've said this previous years, and I've got to say it again. When I first read that when I was young, when I was a child and I read this, I thought, Oh, Joseph, you're making a huge mistake. Don't you know this is the very thing that got you sold into slavery was because your father was preferring you over the other brothers and now you're going to do the same you're going to make the same mistake I said look at if you give Benjamin five times what the others are getting they're going to be jealous of him and it was much much later in my life when I was learning Torah through different eyes looking at it with a different lens and looking for those messianic shadows and I began to understand something I thought to myself precisely he is setting the brothers up 
for another opportunity to do the exact same thing because he wants to know if they will. That was the point. To take and give preferential treatment to the other son of Rachel, Benjamin. There were only two. Himself and Benjamin. He had been dealt with years earlier and Benjamin remained. So the question is, if he's going to give preferential treatment to Benjamin, the other son of Rachel, the son of the beloved wife, what will their response be? That's exactly what the test was for. He knew they would be speaking to each other. He knew that he would be able to discern very quickly whether or not they would begin to harbor hatred and resentment toward Benjamin. Because if he was, like, if he was favorable toward Joseph... How much favor, more favorable would their father have been toward Benjamin after Joseph was gone? And he wanted to see, what was it like? Was Benjamin also receiving the brunt of things at home as he had when he was living there? Was Benjamin in danger? So what is he going to do here? He's going to give Benjamin five times the amount of his brothers to see what the reaction will be. And indeed, it's an interesting reaction. But we don't see the reaction yet we do, but we don't. Remember that he caused his silver cup to be put in Benjamin's sack. And when Benjamin's sack was opened, it was said, this one will be the slave of my master. Go to the end of the Parsha. Verse 17 of chapter 44. He replied, it would be sacrilegious for me to do this. The man in whose possession the gobble is found, only he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Kind of leaves us hanging. It's where we're really going to leave things today. We're going to leave this hanging as well. We're going, to, we're going to leave it hanging. We're going to come back to this next week and we're going to look at the response, what takes place. And we're going to see just how the brothers have been transformed by what has happened to their father. The guilt they have felt, where it's driven them, what it drives them to. And we're going to see again Judah come to the forefront. He's already done it. Judah is the one who speaks up. When they find the goblet in Benjamin's sack, Judah is the one who speaks. Judah arrives with his brothers, verse 14. Why does it say it like that? Because Judah begins to take the leadership role which is prophesied of him. And here is where we begin to see it take place. Judah will become the spokesperson. Judah has already become the spokesperson with his own father. Let his blood be upon me if I don't return him. Reuben's offer, kill my sons. Very generous of him, I think, to volunteer his own son's life if he doesn't return Benjamin to his father is rejected, understandably so. How insincere it would seem. Yet Judah says, from my hand, you may require it of me, I will be held responsible. And Jacob says, take the boy and go. Judah already taking the role of spokesperson, of advocate, of one who is going to be the forerunner of Messiah. Joseph is the picture of Messiah, but it will not be from Joseph's lineage that Messiah will come. It will be from Judah and so to see the dual role here of Joseph picturing the Messiah in his work, in his life, and Judah being the one through whom Messiah will come, Judah begins to take on other aspects of messianic 
um, pictureship, if you will. And that's where we're going to see it continuing next week. One final thing. When Jacob learned that his own son had been taken from him and he saw the bloodied garment, what did Jacob do? Do you remember, fellas? What did Jacob do when he was presented with the bloodied garment? He tore his clothes. Very good. I don't know who that was, but very good. He tore his clothing. That's correct. I want you to see something. When they take Benjamin and they're saying that Benjamin's going to have to remain, look at verse 13. They tore their garments. All of them. All of them tore their garments. Why is this important? The tearing of the garment is a sign of grief. The tearing of the garment accompanies death. They believed that for all intents and purposes, their father would die. And for this reason, they tear their garments. It isn't just grief, a sign of death. You say, but a Jewish man will tear his clothes if his son or his daughter marries outside of the faith. That is because to them, that child has died. Death is the reason you tear your clothes. These, these ten sons tear their garments because they know if they go home like this, their father will die. He himself told them, death, the torn garment. So often, we think about the second temple period and we think about what happened. Messiah, taken, crucified, killed. And what is the result after his death? The veil of the temple. The veil is ripped from top to bottom. This veil which God is behind that veil. His presence is covered by it. Clothing as it were. And the tearing of that garment from top to bottom denotes that real death occurred. And here I want, to, I want you to say, I want to say this. Joseph has had garments ripped over him twice. Really, his father ripped a garment on the belief that he was dead. The brothers are ripping the garment again because of Yosef's decree, but they don't know he's alive either. So Yosef is the hidden person, hidden from his father's eyes even though he was living. And here, he's hidden from his brother's eyes and they're tearing their garments again now because of his decree that Benjamin must stay and become the slave. The idea of the tearing of the garments I want to leave you with today. Another example of how Yosef prefigures the Messiah. How he demonstrates him. I think that estrangement is naturally going to be something that everyone feels grief over. Everyone's touched by grief. Even those who are close to someone who has been touched by grief, you are affected by it. You cannot help it. It happens. What is our response to it? Well, to bear one another's burdens, to pray for each other, to hold each other up, to be 
those who would weep with those who weep, but be ready to rejoice with those who rejoice, because joy comes in the morning. And those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Jacob has sown many, many tears because he's been separated from his beloved son. The brothers have known grief and the years that have passed have cemented that grief and guilt and shame. And now it's going to come to light. It's going to be exposed and every deed will be shown. Next week as we continue the story, we're going to see how Yosef handles the change in his brothers. We're going to see how his brothers handle the change in Yosef. We're going to see how Jacob handles the news and what will befall him in the end of his life. And we're going to see all all this through the lens of the Messiah. The Messiah. The Messiah. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, thank you for our time together. Thank you for again showing us the person and the work of the Messiah. Thank you for giving us each other and knowing that the community, though it may be down south, though it may be on the road, though it may be in Florida, though it may be spread out right now, that there is a connectivity and a bond which is as real as family can have with each other when they're not directly with each other. Thank you for those who are here and thank you for those that you are bringing. Thank you for the relationships you are causing to grow and that which you plan for the future. And we realize that while we may be in a period of mourning and grief for some, that there is a hope that one day reconciliation will come and that there will be a real bond of renewal. We look forward to it. We do not know the timetable. And it may be in the life to come when these things occur. But we know that the the sowing of tears which have taken place here will one day be transformed into joy. And the fruit which will come can only be described as life from the dead. To your book written by your hand. We pray this. Vashem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Yeverecha Adonai, Vishmarecha, Yaer Adonai Baramlecha, Vikunecha, Yisa Adonai, Panavalecha, Vesemlecha, Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and place it upon you and give you peace. Amen. Oh,